quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with a warning from the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He says this will be a, quote, bad week for deaths, unquote. And moments ago, the death toll in the United States of coronavirus, as compiled by Johns Hopkins University, surpassed 14,000 deaths. It is specifically 14,262. To give you an idea of how quickly this is spreading and killing, this time last week, at the beginning of April, the death toll from coronavirus was about a third of that, 4,500 And health experts say that that number is likely an undercount because of the lag in test production and how much the system is currently overwhelmed. And today, yet another grim milestone. Coronavirus has now killed more people so far in the United States in just six weeks than the H1N1 pandemic killed in all of 2009. Dr. Fauci calling this week, quote, sobering. As Dr. Deborah Burks of the White House Coronavirus Task Force explains, there is new concern that Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and Philadelphia may be emerging hotspots in the United States. Nationwide, there is growing evidence that the social and physical distancing and stay-at-home measures are, in fact, helping to alleviate the devastation in the United States nationally. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying that his state is beginning to see some results and it is starting to flatten the curve. The revised projection by the University of Washington of the national death toll now down to 60,000 anticipated deaths by August. That's assuming the measures in place continue as they are. It's a reduction of about 20,000 deaths from the previous projection and a significant reduction from previous ones that had it up to 240,000. So far, the global death toll from coronavirus globally is more than 87,000 deaths, nearly 1.5 million confirmed infected. Moments ago, the death toll in the United States of coronavirus, as compiled by Johns Hopkins University, surpassed 14,000 deaths. It is specifically 14,262. To give you an idea of how quickly This is spreading and killing this time last week at the beginning of April. The death toll from coronavirus was about a third of that, 4,500. And health experts say that that number is likely an undercount because of the lag in test production and how much the system is currently overwhelmed. And today, yet another grim milestone. Coronavirus has now killed more people so far in the United States in just six weeks than the H1N1 pandemic killed in all of 2009. Dr. Fauci calling this week, quote, sobering. As Dr. Deborah Burks of the White House Coronavirus Task Force explains, there is new concern that Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and Philadelphia may be emerging hotspots in the United States. Nationwide, there is growing evidence that the social and physical distancing and stay-at-home measures 
are in fact helping to alleviate the devastation in the United States nationally. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo saying that his state is beginning to see some results and it is starting to flatten the curve. The revised projection by the University of Washington of the national death toll now down to 60,000 anticipated deaths by August. That's assuming the measures in place continue as they are. It's a reduction of about 20,000 deaths from the previous projection and a significant reduction from previous ones that had it up to 240,000. So far, the global death toll from coronavirus globally is more than 87,000 deaths, nearly 1.5 million confirmed infected. And about 420,000 of those infected are in the United States. And while we cannot be sure of all the numbers being reported worldwide, and in fact, there's plenty of reason to doubt what governments such as China are, are reporting, it is worth noting that based on the available data, the United States, with roughly 4.25% of the world's population, has 28% of the world's confirmed cases of coronavirus and 16% of the world's reported fatalities. As CNN's Erica Hill reports, some states in the United States are bracing for an even higher death toll than initially projected. A blunt assessment from the top. It's going to be a bad week for deaths. For the second day in a row, New York State announcing a new high for single-day deaths, 779 on Tuesday. With morgues overloaded, hard-hit communities are bringing in refrigerated trailers and more help. In New York City, hundreds of National Guard members and more than 50 active-duty mortuary military specialists are now assisting the medical examiner's office. As states and cities report a rising death toll, there is some hope. Projected deaths nationwide now expected to be closer to 60,000 by August, revised down significantly thanks to social distancing. The message from officials, this is no time to let up. We're all looking to finally get out from under this, but it's not that time yet. The progress confirms the strategies working. Washington, D.C., one of several cities now on the radar as potential hotspots, according to the White House Task Force coordinator, who also singled out Baltimore, Philadelphia and Houston. New CNN polling reveals a majority of Americans feel the federal government has done a poor job preventing the spread. Eighty percent feel the worst is yet to come. More rural areas are starting to get hit. And I'm really worried because hospitals in those areas don't have as many ICU beds, don't have the same capacity. With each day, there is also mounting evidence that the virus is impacting African-Americans at a much higher rate. Underserved communities also hit hard. Whatever the situation is, it's a natural disaster, Hurricane Katrina. The people standing on those rooftops were not rich white people. Why? Why is it that the poorest people always pay the highest price? Let's learn from this moment and let's learn these lessons and let's do it now. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said the state will increase testing and research in minority communities starting today to better understand the disparity. The Department of Health and Human Services announcing GM will produce 30,000 ventilators for the national stockpile, costing nearly half a billion dollars. Those will be delivered by the end of August, as hotspots across the country face concerns about meeting the needs today. Meantime, the conversation about how and when to reopen the country is starting with a focus on antibody testing, 
to learn who was infected but asymptomatic. This makes a very big difference in really understanding who can go back to work and how they can go back to work. Those tests could be available in the next 10 to 14 days, according to Dr. Burks. Though in reality, there is no clear end date for this pandemic. Pennsylvania and New York following New Jersey's lead, lowering flags to half-staff in honor of the thousands lost to this virus. Jake, at the Javits Center just behind me, there there are 104 patients uh, being treated here. Now, keep in mind, there are some 2,500 beds, and there have been a lot of questions about why there aren't more patients in those beds. Governor Cuomo said today that hospitals in the state are actually releasing more patients than are coming in. That's one good sign. Remember, he said hospitalizations are down. He also said because there was so much preparation across the state uh, that they are not needing as many of the beds at this moment. This is overflow space, as is the comfort. Uh, So in his mind, that is a good thing that not as many beds are being used at the moment, Jake. Now, the search for silver linings. Erica Hill, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining me now to discuss is, uh, as always, CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, good to see you as always. So this new model shows projected deaths uh, down and it's about at about 60,000 uh, is anticipated by August uh, and an earlier peak for the virus uh, coming in the next few days. And yet at the same time that it's being revised down, we had the, the most, most deaths in a single day period just yesterday, more than 2,000. Help us make sense of this. Well, I, I think that um, both, both things can be true. These are still models that they're looking at. And as you know, when you look at these numbers overall, you're seeing a, a uh, sort of lag time, Jake. You're seeing these hospitalizations uh, and then pe- you know, people who are tested, they go to the hospital, that takes some time. Uh, then if they sadly die, that's a, a week or so after that. So it's a little bit of a reflection of time uh, in, the, in the past. I think what's interesting, I, when I really dove into these models and talked to Chris Murray, uh, the one that uh, is you know, sort of helping author these models, he's taking input now from other countries as well. Initially, the models were really based on China and saying, hey, if we do what China did, where would our models be? And, and sort of realizing that we couldn't necessarily do what China was doing in terms of stay-at-home orders. What's, what's I think, somewhat uh, optimistic is that these other countries that have had stay-at-home orders, maybe not as strict as China or as early as China, have still had some benefit from that, and that has informed these models. Jake, when I take a closer look, though, I just want to make this point. Even state by state, I've looked community by community in some of these models. There's wide variation still, Jake. So in New York, for example, I think I looked at the variation of somewhere between 300 to 1,800 people uh, who may die on, during the peak days. So significant variation at each level. And, you know, so we, we still got to be a little humble with regard to these models. Right. They're not facts. They're just projections based on the input of facts. Um, Dr. Deborah Burks, who heads right. the, the coronavirus task force at the White House, uh, she said today that the Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. areas are expected to be the new hotspots. And she also said she's closely watching Houston Um, Is this just the virus making its expected way through other parts of the country? Is there something else going on? I think there's a few things that are sort of informing that. One is, uh, are these areas where you have big international airports? And that was relevant because it's likely that there was introduction 
and seeding of the virus, you know, going back to January, early February. And even now, you know, um, you know a couple months later, you may start to see a significant community spread. We hope not, but you could see that. And obviously more densely populated areas, areas with public transportation. Those are all some of the things that they're sort of focused in on, learning obviously a little bit from what has happened in New York. But Jake, to your point, I mean, rural areas, I think, you know, cannot you know, necessarily breathe a sigh of relief yet. We know that if you have even right. a couple, three cases in some of these communities within days, there's better than a, a 50% chance that it's going to start to spread. You're gonna see increased numbers. So this is the time to be vigilant still, no matter where you are in the country. Yeah, I mean, people need to remember this all started one person came into the country with it. Um, Johns Hopkins University, uh, which tracks coronavirus cases worldwide, um, they changed its trend designation overnight to down for the United States, meaning that the the number of cases is going down on the five-state rolling average uh, or five-state information. Um, It's similar to current trending status for Italy and Spain. Is that significant, or do we need to see what the next few days bring? Yeah, I, I think that the, the next few days are going to be really important, but this five-day rolling average, I think, is is a really interesting indicator. I've been following it for, for some time, and, and it's worth pointing out, as you, as you say, the United States is down, so, so averaging these last five days sort of made sense looking at the numbers. But three countries, Jake, that I've been following uh, are actually five-day rolling average up. China's one of them. UK is one of them, and Belgium. But China, we got to pay attention to, right, Jake? Because we're talking about sort of emerging from the shutdowns. Now, now the numbers are still small, but you are seeing a five-day rolling average going up. Uh, you know, so that could be concerning, and it may sort of uh, prompt some more uh, reinforced uh, lockdown recommendations again. We'll have to see what happens over there. President Trump said yesterday he wants to open the economy with a bang. Um, Dr. Fauci told lawmakers today that the task force is working on a, a framework to return Americans to, quote, normalcy. What are the metrics you're looking at to determine how and when governors and others should remove their stay-at-home orders? Well, there are some very specific metrics. And again, some of the people who are creating these models are also releasing some of these metrics. Uh, you got to make sure the hospital capacity is there in order to take care of patients that continue to come in the hospital, obvious one. The cornerstone has to be testing. Jake, testing has always been important. We know it was very important at the beginning. We had an inadequate response at that point. It's harder to to actually trace people who come in as uh, positive now because of the community spread. But at the end, at the downward side of this curve, testing, isolation, contact tracing is going to be very important to get there as well. As far as coming out with a bang, you know, Jake, really from a medical standpoint, and, and I think Dr. Fauci's made this point, others have made this point, until you have a vaccine, you probably can't say that. I mean, I think that up for a certain point, unless there's an amazing therapeutic, which people feel very comfortable with, I think for some time to come, uh, we will reemerge, I think schools, universities, uh, businesses like that, um, or, or similar businesses. But I think teleworking is still going to be a big thing. I think older people are still going to told, look, just limit the amount of time you're spreading out in the community. I think there's going to be some basic sort of, you know, thoughts still about reemergence until that vaccine comes or a really effective uh, therapeutic, Jake. All right. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. I'll see you tomorrow. Be sure to listen to Sanjay's uh, daily podcast, Coronavirus Fact Versus Fiction, wherever you access your podcasts. It's a must listen during these troubling days. Coming up, a brand new CNN poll out just this hour. It's on coronavirus and your money. 
Plus, Bernie Sanders drops out of the race as CNN learns he's been talking to former President Obama. What we know about their conversations. That's ahead. Stay with us. Breaking news just in. The results of a brand new CNN poll are now in, and it shows a sharp drop in the views of the American public when it comes to the economy. I want to bring in CNN political director David Chalian. Um, David, obviously, it's not a surprise, but a lot has changed in this last month with with most Americans stuck at home. Um, Give us the numbers. You're right, Jake. It may not be a surprise, but it is dramatic. I don't ever recall seeing a drop like this. But just in one month's time, we've seen when asked people, what do you make of the economic conditions in the country today? Are they good? Only 39 percent say they're good. Sixty nine percent said that a month ago. That is a drop of 30 points. What is really interesting also, Jake, though, people are optimistic it'll be good a year from now. Sixty seven percent in this poll say the economy will be good a year from now. That's about exactly where that optimistic number was just a month ago. So while it impacted their immediate assessment of the economy, uh, Americans are still quite optimistic a year from now they will be bouncing back. That's interesting. And David, almost half of those in this poll say that coronavirus has caused them financial hardship. The numbers are even more stark, of course, when you break it down according to income. Yeah, we're seeing so much about sort of socioeconomic status uh, play out in this, Jake. And if you look at people who have an income of less than $50,000 a year, 60% of them tell us in this poll that they are experiencing hardship uh, due to the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and when you look at people more who earn more than $50,000 in their household income annually, it's still 40%. Four in 10 of those are experiencing hardship. So like you said, you know, half the country says they're experiencing hardship, uh, but you do see the divide there economically. Congress passed that unprecedented $2 trillion stimulus, President Trump signed it into law to, to help individuals, to help small businesses, to help companies. How are people reacting to the legislation that has been passed to help them? More than four in 10 Americans, 44 percent in this poll, say it's not enough to help people like them. Now, 46 percent say it, it is about right. That That is a pretty good sign. But that 44 percent number, Jake, uh, who say it's not enough. I mean, that is why I think you see the congressional leaders very much already talking about uh, the stimulus phases to come, that they're not done with this yet. All right, David Chalian, thank you so much. Um, in our money lead, as the layoffs stack up and Congress continues to try to help the public, a new video shows a small business administration official calling out the big banks, big banks that took free bailout money in 2008. And this official accuses them of now turning their backs on small businesses. The new video was obtained uh, by The Washington Post. Here's a little clip. The same banks that, that basically took billions of dollars with one page from Paulson from Treasury at the time are the ones saying the documentation isn't clear enough for them. So what they're saying is I don't give a hoot about the small businesses. What I care about is whether or not I have enough paperwork. And it's just crazy. That was the Small Business Administration's Nevada District Director in a webinar this uh, this past Monday. Uh, Let's bring in CNN business anchor uh, Julia Chatterley. Um, Julia, that uh, SBA uh, official specifically named Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Chase. He says big banks are only offering loans to existing small business customers, leaving others with no way to get this money. Are the banks doing that, and are they breaking any rules? 
the lenders of all shapes and sizes, JK, are asking and saying that, look, the rules keep changing even on a daily basis. Even as late as last night, we were seeing tweaks. They're right that the big banks are lending to known customers. They say, look, we have the data. We can prevent fraud in this case. And ultimately, it's going to be quicker, which helps. But there are many small businesses that are falling through the gaps. These big banks have lent billions and billions of dollars over the last five days. But it doesn't mean they can't and others can't do more. One banker said to me this week to that exact point, this is our opportunity to say sorry, but the system needs fixing here too. Mm -hmm. Banks have committed $98 billion in loans since the stimulus program launched only last Friday. $349 billion are available. $349. Uh, We've heard about this overwhelming demand. So why isn't the number of the dollars given out already, why isn't it bigger? It's a great question. That $98 billion is to just the three largest banks alone, let's be clear. Wells Fargo is now going to boost that. But there are some immediate fixes that are required from all the people I've spoken to. One, U.S. Treasury needs to send a written note to the lenders to say, get the money out there, you will not be fined. The second thing, the Small Business Administration needs to process these loans quicker somehow and open up access to the community banks to let them lend more too. And finally, to David's point, cash. Congress needs to get more cash to these businesses, promise more, and then everything will calm down. And you heard David Chalian uh, talking about our new CNN poll, only 39% of the American people polled say that economic conditions are good. That's down 30 points in only a month. Obviously, it's been a horrible month. Uh, from your perspective, do you see any way this number can improve anytime soon? Not in April. This reflects the shutdown. It reflects the millions of job losses we're seeing. But key for me, and this is a good part of this, two-thirds of people still think the shock that we're seeing is temporary. It will get better soon. We have to protect that confidence at all costs. And I go full circle here, Jake. We need to get cash to people, to states, to businesses, and we have to do it as fast as possible. We need a fix. All right, CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley, thank you so much. As always, I'll see you tomorrow. There's hundreds of devices sitting unused that could be used to run a million coronavirus tests. Why are they just sitting there unused? We're going to talk to an expert about that next. More than one million new fast coronavirus test kits from Abbott Laboratories, which could deliver results in less than 15 minutes, Well, they're currently sitting idle. This, as the Trump administration continues to struggle with testing nationwide, which health experts say will be necessary for any responsible next step for a way out of this nationwide stay at home. The lab directors could look in their laboratories if they have an, an Abbott M2000, if they could get that up and running. We could double the number of tests that we're doing per day. That is a high throughput. The machines are throughout the United States. There's hundreds of them. Right now, about 80% of them are idle. There's over a million tests sitting, um, test kits sitting, ready to be run. Joining us now to explain and discuss Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious diseases specialist. Dr. Gounder, thanks so much for joining us. So help us understand what she's talking about. Dr. Burke says there are a number of testing machines scattered throughout the United States. Eighty percent of them are not being used. What's going on here and why aren't they being used? 
Well, some documents that have been leaked would indicate that, in fact, these there's a there's an intention to purchase these tests, but they haven't actually made it to the ground where they need to be used, and that the numbers of tests that were intended to be sent to state and local labs only are about in the ballpark of about 5,500 tests, so 5,500 tests. And those are going to be allocated basically evenly across states, regardless of whether they have many cases right now or not. It's not going to be on the basis of population size or, or real demand. Um, so those are those are a couple things. But I, I can tell you, you know, if you're a lab director, and you are sent one of these new Abbott machines, it is your shiny new toy in the lab, you are not going to just let it sit there idle, you're going to put it to use. These things are not, uh, even once they receive them, are not plug and play. There is some testing that needs to be done. Um, and then there are a couple other issues that are going to be frustrating efforts to scale this up, which is that the nasal swabs and other uh, mediums that we use to collect specimens are also in short supply. So there's issues at every step of the way, Jake. So, but just to give every, get everybody, including me, up to speed on this, there are two million of these machines and they've just been sent to labs all over the country in the last few weeks and they're just sitting well, in a, labs? Right. So that's the thing. They haven't made it to the labs. So there are, there are intents to purchase and send. I'm not sure where they're idling, mm-hmm. perhaps in Abbott warehouses, but they're not making it to the labs where they're meant to be used. Okay, so Dr. Burks is incorrect when she says that they're out there, more than a million of them are out there, and 80% of them sitting idle. You're saying only 5,500 of them have gotten actually out to the labs, and we don't know where the other ones are. There's also, right, an issue, because there are all sorts of different kinds of tests for this, uh, for coronavirus. There's also this allocation problem. These new, faster tests become available, and then everybody wants that new, faster test to get the results in 15 minutes as opposed to four days, five days. People flock to those tests, and as a result, the older test machines also sit idle. It's kind of like standing in a long line at the express lane at the grocery store when, when other lanes that are not express are, are, are wide open. How can that be fixed? Well, a lot of those weights are actually related not to the time it takes to do the test, but rather where do you fall in terms of priority in the line? So if you're somebody who's not very sick, who's not in the hospital, who happens to be getting a test, you're going to be made to wait to get your test result. The people who are going to get the uh, test done right away um, are going to be those who are in uh, intensive care units, in the hospital, who are critically ill. So some of that is is really actually a, another form of rationing here. I want to talk to you uh, about hydroxychloroquine, which President Trump, uh, as you know, has been pushing uh, the use of. And look, everybody wants something to emerge to help these people who are suffering, whether it's hydroxychloroquine or whatever. I know there are dozens of drugs being tested. Um, So yesterday, the CDC removed its guidance on how to use hydroxychloroquine from the CDC website. What do you make of that? Well, I think there remains a lot of uh, disagreement between those of us who are scientists and doctors and those of us who are perhaps a bit more emotional and really grasping at straws. And I understand that there is a great desire to save patients. I want to save my patients, but I also don't want to do them harm. And the very patients who are at very high risk of complications from the hydroxychloroquine 
are the patients who are also at risk of severe disease from COVID-19. So patients with underlying heart or lung disease. So this is not something that should be recommended lightly. And I think that's why you see the CDC pulling back any advice on that. Even though uh, hydroxychloroquine is not FDA approved for coronavirus, nothing we should note is FDA approved for coronavirus. The state of Georgia has already acquired 200,000 doses of hydroxychloroquine. Florida is scheduled to receive a million doses today. Um, Is this being tracked and monitored properly so that people like you, infectious diseases specialists, know what's going on, find out the results in real time? Right. So these are medications, whether it's hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir or convalescent serum, you know, any number of these treatments really should be done in the context of a protocol where we're collecting data, because that allows us not only to potentially help somebody, but to learn from that. Because if you don't do that, then we won't know what works and we won't be able to um, to recommend effective treatments in a month or two or three. We'll still be flying blind. So it's really important that this be done in a context where we're actually learning from those experiences. All right, Dr. Celine Gounder, thank you so much. And thank you for the work you do during this difficult time. We really appreciate it. And then there was one, Senator Bernie Sanders, dropping out of the Democratic presidential race, a behind-the-scenes look at what drove his decision. That's next. In our 2020 lead, Senator Bernie Sanders dropped out of the Democratic presidential race today, clearing a path for former Vice President Joe Biden to be the Democratic presidential nominee. Still, Sanders claimed a victory in the fight for the heart and the future of the Democratic Party. While we are winning the ideological battle and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Just yesterday, Wisconsinites braved long lines and rough weather and potential coronavirus contagion to participate in that state's primary, CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now. And Ryan, uh, Sanders offered limited praise of Joe Biden's announcement. Um, I mean, he praised him, but it was limited. What, what did you make of that? <laughs> well, Jake, as you know, Bernie Sanders is not the type of person to heap praise on anyone, regardless of the circumstances. But I think today his message wasn't necessarily directed uh, at Joe Biden and his supporters. It was more directed at the supporters of Sanders' campaign and the progressive movement in America. He wanted to make clear to them that he did everything he possibly could to win this Democratic nomination and that they fell short and that he was going to continue to work to push for those ideals that led him to run for president way back in 2016. Now, this is going to be incumbent upon Sanders now to bring that group of supporters over uh, to Joe Biden's camp before the November election because they could be very important uh, if Joe Biden is to beat Donald Trump in November. And Joe Biden seems to understand that as well. He has been uh, very positive in his praise for Bernie Sanders as he exit the race. In fact, uh, uh, Biden penned a very long essay uh, just uh, thanking uh, Bernie Sanders' contribution to the political discourse. And he also tweeted this. He said, I know Bernie well. He is a good man, a great leader, and one of the most powerful voices for change 
in our country and one that is hard to sum up his contributions to our politics in one single tweet. So I won't try. So, Jake, uh, I think the next stage of this conversation is how Biden and Sanders come together uh, to unite the Democratic Party as they head into the November election. Obviously, something that will not be easy, given the fact that the coronavirus pandemic has basically put the campaign for president on ice. Ryan, somebody else that was quick to tweet was uh, President Trump, who is eager to have the divisions in the Democratic Party and have Sanders supporters either vote for him or at least sit out uh, the race, uh, as some of them did in 2016. What are you hearing from Sanders supporters and other progressive groups when it comes to what they're going to do now? Well, the simple answer to that question, Jake, is that it's not going to be Bernie Sanders that necessarily wins over the support of these folks for Joe Biden. It's really going to be incumbent upon Joe Biden to win that support over. In fact, there's a wide group of progressive groups uh, that represent particularly young people, millennials and Generation Z folks like the Sunrise Movement, Justice Democrats and Next Gen America. They put out a combined letter to Joe Biden talking about these big progressive issues that they feel are important and should become an important part of his campaign. So uh, while a Sanders endorsement will go a long way to winning over those folks, it's really going to be about more about what Joe Biden stands for and how he's going to apply that to his presidential campaign if he's going to get their votes in November. Yeah, could be a tall order for some of them. Uh, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. The president lashing out today over criticism of his administration's handling of this pandemic, blaming the World Health Organization, blaming Democrats, blaming the media, blaming governors. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, A new CNN poll shows that 52 percent of the American people do not approve of how President Trump has handled this crisis. I'd love to open with a big bang, one beautiful country and just open. President Trump's aides are hoping to give him the economic big bang he's counting on. And CNN has learned they've started intensive discussions about a plan to reopen the economy as soon as May, which could ultimately lead to a showdown between his staff. Trump is touting a potential turnaround in the outbreak after a key forecasting model that the White House has cited now says the U.S. may see fewer deaths than initially expected. A model is as good as the assumptions that you put into the model. Some health officials say it's too early to declare victory just yet. What's really important is that people don't turn these early signs of hope into releasing from the 30 days to stop the spread. A new CNN poll finds 55 percent of Americans now say the federal government has done a poor job of preventing the spread of coronavirus in the U.S. And they think Trump could be doing more to fight the outbreak. As confidence in the federal government's response has dropped, today there are new questions about missed warning signs. ABC News is reporting that a military intelligence report warned of a crisis as far back as November because a contagion was sweeping through Wuhan. But the defense secretary says he doesn't recall such a report. I'm not aware of that. I I will tell you again, our folks work this all the time. The president has continued to blame others for his response. He's now threatening to withhold funds from the World Health Organization because he says it acted too slowly to sound the alarm. Basically, everything was very positive for China. Don't close your borders, they told me. The WHO reported a pneumonia of unknown cause in late December and declared a global health emergency at the end of January. But critics have said they were too trusting of the Chinese government that initially tried to conceal key details about the outbreak. 
Now, Jake, during a call with Democratic lawmakers today, Dr. Fauci said the task force is working on some kind of framework and trying to establish one that could help Americans return to normal life. He did say he expects the task force to issue some kind of guidance on that in the next few days, though it's still unclear exactly what that would look like. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, thank you so much. A new controversial proposal to slow the spread involving the White House and Big Brother and you. The details and the privacy concerns, that's next. As the Trump administration looks for ways to slow the spread of coronavirus, a White House task force led by presidential aide and son-in-law Jared Kushner is considering developing a national surveillance system. According to Politico, the network would track the kind of symptoms patients are experiencing and if hospitals have the resources to treat them. This, of course, is raising issues of privacy concerns for some. Joining me now is CNN technology reporter Brian Fung. Brian, thanks for joining us. What more do we know about this proposal and what is the White House saying about it? Well, according to the Politico article, the proposal from the White House would uh, seek to draw private sector data from health tech companies uh, so that it can track the availability of things like hospital beds and to find out which emergency rooms are being hit hardest by the coronavirus. And this information could allow the government to rush resources uh, to those that are you know, most in need of supplies like uh, protective equipment and tests and so forth. Now, CNN hasn't confirmed the report but the White House is pushing back on Politico's reporting, saying the article is, quote, completely false and that Jared Kushner has no knowledge of any such proposal. Still, that hasn't stopped critics from slamming the idea. Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts said in a statement after the Politico report came out that, quote, the Trump administration has not given me or the American people any confidence that it is capable of creating or maintaining a massive health data network in a manner that doesn't undermine our fundamental right to privacy. All of this suggests there's tensions between what's now possible with technology and the ethical questions surrounding how it should be used to fight the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, North Dakota is one of the states that still does not have uh, an aggressive stay-at-home order in place. It's now using an app, however, to track those who may have had contact with coronavirus patients. Um, so whether or not the Trump administration is discussing this, this is out there. How does that app work? Well, according to reports, the app would basically be a voluntary uh, measure that individual users could download for themselves. And the app would then track the locations, recording information about your geolocation data from the smartphone and then report that to health officials. Now, uh, health officials could then use that information to determine what are actually staying at home or if they're going out into public and if uh, stronger measures may be needed like stay-at-home orders or uh, other measures designed to uh, to help keep the public safe and secure. Um, on the other hand, there are also questions about how useful this data may be uh, in terms of you know the, the uh, steps that companies like Apple have put into place to make it harder for these types of apps to collect location data and other personal information. Uh, and so privacy and civil uh, cybersecurity experts say this type of information may actually be less useful because it's not as up to date, for instance. It may be minutes or hours old, which may also help uh, prevent uh, users and, and from reporting their information accurately. Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept uh, did an interview with former NSA contractor uh, and fugitive uh, Edward Snowden about some of the 
privacy concerns that tracking programs raise. This is a discussion going on around the world. Here's a little snippet of that interview. Take a listen. We are being made to depend on a system uh, that we do not really understand and do not have that much control over. The only thing that we have left, our rights, our ideals, our values as people, that's what they're coming for now. That's what they're asking us to give up. That's what they're asking to change. So, Brian, uh, Snowden is, is right to note the security concerns, uh, handing over information to the government and just assuming we can trust this government or any government it can be troubling to people. Absolutely. And I think it really just boils down to how much who do you trust more? Uh, private companies who we give data to every day or the federal government who is increasingly seeking access to this data. In both cases, we're talking about what measures are acceptable in a public health crisis and a national emergency. Jake. All right, Brian Fung, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And our world lead, Spain, is announcing that the country is conducting a clinical trial aiming to prevent the further spread of coronavirus among their healthcare workers, or calling it the biggest study of its kind. About 22,000 health workers in Spain have been infected. That accounts for about 15% of the total number of cases in Spain. France saw its deadliest day yet in the coronavirus pandemic, with 562 reported dead in just the last 24 hours. The death toll in that country is now standing at more than 10,000. And in New Zealand, one person has died after that country's government acted very early and aggressively to close borders and lock down the entire nation. We have reporters around the world joining me now to discuss what's going on. Uh, after two nights in intensive care, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's condition has been improving and he's said to be sitting up and engaging with hospital staff. Let's go to the UK now where we find CNN's Nick Robertson uh, joining me for live from London. Uh, Nick, do we know how long Prime Minister Johnson uh, is going to remain in intensive care? Uh, We don't. Uh, There's no assessment being given. We're not getting a direct readout from his doctors. The very latest is that the Prime Minister continues to make steady progress. But when we're told in the briefing, as we were by by government officials today, that he's making steady progress, that he is that there is positive uh, improvement, that he's engaging positively. um, This doesn't answer the question. Well, was he not engaging positively yesterday? Was he not engaging? Um, So there's a lot that we don't know. We don't know the severity of his symptoms. We don't know uh, what's giving the, uh, the doctors the encouragement and the feeling that is, that is making this uh, steady progress. Um, we do know, however, that today was the deadliest day so far in the UK. 938 people died. In percentage terms, it seems to be plateauing. That's what government officials are saying, that, it, that it's not accelerating out of control. One official said, another health official said that uh, there does seem to be some plateauing. And it's beginning to beg that question that many in the cabinet would like to see the prime minister back to help make that decision on when to lift the lockdown. That's a big question. And as big, when is the prime minister going to be involved in those decisions? We just don't know, Jake. Sure seems like there's a lot of information about the prime minister that the government is not giving the press or the public. Uh, Nick Robertson, thanks so much. Confirmed cases in Africa have grown exponentially in recent weeks, according to the World Health Organization, saying the virus has the potential to unleash economic and social devastation on that continent. CNN's David McKenzie joins me now from Johannesburg, South Africa. David, what's the plan for containing the virus, not only in cities like Johannesburg, but but in smaller villages with 
limited access to resources? Well, that's a good question, Jake, and that's what really troubles me about this World Health Organization announcement that more than 10,000 are confirmed to have the virus. But that number is less than other regions because the virus hit most of the continent much later. What is even more troubling is that exponential spread you mentioned. And what they're doing about it? Well, large parts of this continent already locked down. Uh, governments and presidents across the continent took decisive action early on. South Africa is under a 21-day lockdown. Key countries like uh, Kenya and Nigeria are also virtually shut down. Here's what really worries me, uh, Jake. More than 80% of this continent is, uh, has informal jobs. If you don't work, you don't eat after several days, perhaps in, in many circumstances. As the continent tries to combat this, to try and uh, stop the virus from spreading and collapsing weak health systems, how are, go are they going to make those difficult choices? Uh, because so many people just can't survive in lockdown. You know, self-isolation is a privilege. Many people on this continent can't afford that privilege. Jake? Indeed. Dave McKenzie in Johannesburg, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The Pope saying he thinks coronavirus could be something of a response to humans ignoring climate change, saying, quote, I don't know if these are the revenge of nature, but they are certainly nature's responses, unquote. CNN's Ben Wiedemann joins me now live from Rome. Uh, and Ben, this was part of a, a revealing interview the Pope just gave. Yeah, that's right. He gave this uh, interview to a British journalist who's writing for the tablet and Commonweal. And it was certainly a harsh critique of the world system as it exists today, certainly in the shadow of this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, he said that now in this moment of crisis, it is a time to see the poor and to help them out and not to treat them as rescue animals. Uh, he referred to a photograph he saw from Los Angeles, where he said that the homeless were being kept in quarantine in a parking lot in a city, he said, where there are thousands of empty hotel rooms where they could be uh, housed. He also mentioned uh, politicians who are using rhetoric reminiscent of Adolf Hitler in 1933, talking about perhaps helping the poor, but uh, not doing much other than selling weapons. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much. Stay safe. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. If you are one who celebrates Passover, I hope you have a Happy Passover, or as happy as you can have under these circumstances. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.